Well, hello and welcome to the Ryan Polly podcast. I want to jump in here really quick and just say, I'm sorry. I forgot to plug in my microphone when I went live on YouTube. And so the audio quality of today's show is, well, let's just say not good. But I hope that you enjoy the content anyways. Here we go. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the show again. Um, today, we want to look at, I want to look at what it looks like to read Scripture well. With Scripture being the foundation of the Christian faith, where God has revealed himself to us, we need to figure out how to read this well to try to figure out what is God revealing to us. And this is a huge task that the Christian should be trying to do well. And it's hard because, hey, everyone kind of disagrees and there's different interpretations and understandings of what Scripture says. So is it all just relative? Can we actually figure it out? And the answer is yes, there is a true understanding. There's a true meaning that we need to figure out how to get to. So, uh, Slam, thanks for being here. And uh, anyone else who joins, I hope this conversation is fun. Today, we're going to be looking at 10 common mistakes that people make when reading the Bible, as well as kind of how to fix it. And then uh, what I want to do as well is I want to work through kind of a, a basic understanding of how to interpret kind of the big categories or big genres of the text. And so we're going to be looking at Old Testament narrative. We're going to be looking at the Psalms, Proverbs and wisdom literature. Um, what else is there? Prophets, the Gospels, the Book of Acts and the Epistles. And then I'm going to end with kind of giving what I do in my personal devotional time and how I read through scripture. And so this is something that I recently did with my students towards the end of the year. We get to very practical things of how to read the Bible well, and we kind of walk through this. And I think it's it was interesting to them because often this is not taught on how to do devotions, how to read well until maybe later on. Uh, some of these things you may know. And so, uh, as always, after I get done, I'm going to be get putting timestamps uh, below. And so if there's topics that you don't really care about, if you don't really care about the common mistakes that people make, but you want to figure out how to better understand the, the Proverbs or better understand the, uh, the Gospels or whatever that may be, you can always just fast forward ahead and click through those sections. And I hope that something here helps you to think deeper about Bible and what God has revealed uh, there in that. Um, if you're joining for the first time, my name is Ryan Pauly, and um, I'm excited to be here with you to help you again, try to, to train you to think well and to understand Christianity, defend it well, and then faithfully live it out. Uh, this topic has also kind of been on my mind because I was recently invited to the Orange County Rescue Mission, kind of one of the most comprehensive homeless ministries in the nation right here in Orange County, uh, to lead a discussion group on the authority and reliability of scripture. Uh, but the, the students had kind of heard a lecture the, a couple weeks before on that topic, and they had less questions about the lecture, and they had a lot more questions of, okay, like, one guy was like, I read the Bible, and it's confusing. How am I supposed to understand this? How do I know whose kind of view is right? And so we spent a lot of time discussing just basic interpretation principles and how to read the Bible well. And it was a blast. And again, just recognizing this is something so important to work through. Now, uh, I want to give a quick little brief update. Um, and so if you don't care about this, you can, again, hit those timestamps and skip forward if you're watching after the fact. Uh, but I would love your prayers. Uh, this summer is going to be crazy. Um, there's a lot that is going on, and uh, it all starts next week. And so I just want to very quickly kind of run through uh, the schedule with you, kind of what is going on, and so that you can be specifically praying for myself, my wife, my son, as we head to these different events. Uh, so starting next week, uh, that would be uh, June 8th. On the June 8th, we're heading up to a camp here in Southern California uh, for a three-day high school retreat. So these churches are coming together for a high school retreat at this camp, and I'm going to be spending about three days with them, giving five different lectures uh, to help them, again, think about Christianity. Uh, right after that, uh, June 12th, leaving for a Los Angeles Worldview uh, trip with Maven. So there's a team from North Dakota coming down to Los Angeles, and we're going to be spending a week uh, in Los Angeles, going to different locations, doing worldview training uh, with Maven. I got a short break after that, and then we head to a conference in Torrance. So if you are in the Southern California area, I believe this conference is available uh, to the open public. So there's a church in Torrance, Bread of Life, and they are having their yearly weekend conference. It's going to be a Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning conference. Five different sessions uh, there in Torrance on June 24, 25, and 26. I fly out. Immediately from the conference, we leave uh, for Utah for the Maven Theological Immersive Experience in Utah. Training two different churches are coming together. 
joining us out in Utah. Going to be doing trainings on Christian theology and Mormonism and evangelism out there in Utah. I got a couple weeks break after that. Uh, then we're heading back up to a summer camp here in uh, Southern California for a junior high high school combo um, week long uh, summer camp, where I'm going to be doing eight different sessions uh, there from July 17 to 22. After that, we fly to Florida for another high school retreat, July 27 to August 1st, and then heading out to Summit Ministries at the end of August, August 14 to 27, uh, as the faculty in residence for session seven of Summit Colorado. And so uh, those are the different events. I think I have about 30 or so different speaking uh, lectures that I'm going to be giving over that time, seven different events. And so it is going to be a busy, busy summer. So I'm already scheduling interviews on the times that I'm going to be home. Uh, Daryl Bach, the New Testament scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote a book a couple years ago called Cultural Intelligence, uh, How to Have a Better a View of Developing a Theology of Cultural Engagement. Uh, he's going to be coming on the show July 12 at 1 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time for a conversation there. And I have a few more emails that I've sent out as well uh, that I'll let you know. So this going to be busy fun summer. That's one thing I love about being done with school is having a lot more kind of time to, to hit the road, to speak at events, uh, to record some interviews. And so uh, that is some stuff to look forward to. And again, as always, I would love your prayers as we are, are have this busy time and taking in my six-month-old son to all of us, all of these, so you can be praying for my wife and I. So uh, anyways, there's the brief up update. Uh, thank you guys for those who uh, are kind of involved in this ministry, and um, we'll be praying for that. So jumping in, um, why this show? Well, what we have to recognize is, is that when we approach Scripture, everyone is interpreting Scripture. We all have an interpretation uh, method, kind of whether we like it or not. And, and what uh, has happened recently is, is many Americans, but many Americans have developed bad reading habits. And so there are times where we approach the Bible where we are not reading it well. Often these are very relativistic reading habits where we relativize it to ourselves. And we sometimes think at times where we can maybe determine the meaning of a text. And this is, again, getting a very different approach to Scripture, where, look, if God is revealing himself to us in his word, we need to read it well to understand the accurate revelation that he is giving. And so to think that, like, hey, I don't, I don't need to figure out how to read the Bible. I just have to read it. I just have to do it. Um, well, what if we're doing it wrong? Right? And that's, and that's the question of what if we're doing it wrong? Like, we, we learn how to read, for example, in school, and it's like, well, what if you're reading something wrong? What if you're misunderstanding the words? What if you are not doing it accurately? All right, what if you're doing math wrong and you're always getting wrong answers, but you don't know it? I right, want to make sure that we're doing it well, that we're getting the right answer, that we're coming to the right understanding. And so what we have to recognize, again, is, it, is that the Word of God is written to us through other people, in other languages, in other cultures, in other historical contexts. And so we have to do a good job, right? The, 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 the theological word is called hermeneutics, right? It's the study of Scripture, the, the, the practice of interpreting and explaining Scripture well. We have to do a good hermeneutic to interpret the through part so that we don't distort the two part, right? So it's like we want to make sure, like, how do we understand how this is working through people so that we can understand uh, what God is actually saying to us and what we can learn about him. And so uh, we want to make sure that we are doing this well. And again, kind of big picture idea before we get into these problems, it's this is top down, right? This is a big switch that we have seen uh, maybe in, in culture uh, to kind of generalize is that instead of having this bottom up approach where we, the reader, determine meaning and it kind of goes upwards, uh, what we have to recognize is that the best way to read and understand scripture is a top-down approach, right? The reading comes from, the meaning comes from the top down, from the author down to us. And so in order to kind of do this and, and some habits that we created is first of all, looking at the genre of the text. What is the genre? What is this book? What type of communication is it? Then we look at what is the big idea or unit of thought? So then what is the book about? Right? What is that chapter about? Then you look at the big idea, the paragraph. Then you can look at the sentence. Then you kind of look at the word. And so it's always decreasing to smaller and smaller amounts. But we got to start big picture. Uh, oftentimes we start at that one word. And then all of a sudden, based on what we think this one word means, all of a sudden start to expand out. And we kind of go the wrong way. So jumping into uh, some of these mistakes that we make. So number one, 
It's just that we assume that the Bible does not need to be interpreted, right? Where we often uh, see this claim of like, no, the, the Bible is, I just read the Bible. That's all, you know, this is what the Bible says. This is what the word of God says. And you hear this a lot in some conversations of, I just read the Bible. And it's like, yes, you're reading it, but you also have to interpret it when you read it. I talk a lot about this when I address kind of the science and faith questions, is that we often want to compare the Bible versus science, where we recognize God's revelation in the Bible and God's revelation in nature are the two revelations of God. We have to interpret both. Science is our interpretation, our understanding of nature, as well as our theology is our interpretation and our understanding of Scripture. Yes, there are things that are very clear. There are things that are much more clear than others, but everything that we read, we have to interpret. And so we have to make sure that every reader is an interpreter. All of us are interpreting scripture when we read it. Um, and so we have to figure out, am I interpreting this accurately? When they say something, is this what it actually means? So that's the first mistake is assume it doesn't need interpretation. I just read it. I let it speak for itself and don't... Um, kind of have this understanding that our bias is going to affect maybe how we understand what scripture is saying. Now, moving on from there, actually, let me make sure a few other things. Um, we also tend to think that our understanding is the same thing as the Holy Spirit and the original author's intent, right? Just because I understand it some way, that doesn't mean that that is what the Holy Spirit and the original author intended, right? And so that is our goal that we have to look at is saying, okay, what was the original intent and that is the proper way of interpreting. Now, the second one, and a really big one that we often make, is that we assume, our second mistake, we assume that the Bible applies uniquely to us. Now, here we have to be very careful, I'm trying to be careful in my language, of, of kind of what this looks like and what this means. Um, but there's a great book, it's behind me on the shelf over here, uh, on reading through the Bible. And there's a difference between reading something in Scripture and that thing triggering a thought about someone or about a current event and go, oh, yeah, I should pray for that person, right? That's a very real thing that we can do, right? So we can read about the early church and then go, ah, I should pray about my church, right? And then pray for your pastors. Like, that's a beautiful thing to allow something that is written in Scripture to kind of trigger our thoughts for something that is happening in our life. However, that does not mean that that passage is speaking about your situation specifically, right? So a common example here is if you are trying as a church to figure out, should we build a new church building? Should we spend a bunch of money and redo the church building and make a new church? And then you read the story of, for example, the Israelites building the tabernacle and you say, oh my goodness, this story is here to tell us that just like they built a tabernacle, we need to build a new church building. No, that's not why that story is there. It's not just directly related to your event. Now, maybe it has some principles that you can learn from it, um, but that's not why it's there. Right? Another kind of funny example is like you read the story of Balaam's talking donkey and say, ah, oh, that reminds me that I talk too much, right? This is there to tell me I talk too much and maybe I shouldn't talk as much. No, Balaam's talking donkey is nothing to do about how much or how little you talk. That is a very different purpose for what is going on there in the text. Now, again, another kind of common example and where this is used uh, would be something like 2 Chronicles 7.14, right? Where it talks about if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Now, we often read things like this and say, okay, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, God has promised that he will heal our country if we pray, so God is probably going to promise he'll heal the United States if we turn from our sins and pray. It's like, well, again, there is a biblical truth of turning from sins and praying. What's up, Daniel? Um, but uh, this passage in 2 Chronicles is not talking about American land, right? America did not exist at this time. And so God is making a specific promise to these people. And so this is kind of the second thing is where we sometimes um, think it applies uniquely to us that somehow we are in that position. Hey, Kelby, welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, and we need to recognize, again, what is the original purpose that is happening here? And then what sort of principles can we draw from this? And so we first, um, when you approach the text, before we focus on our, ourselves or before we focus on our current circumstances, we first have to focus on God. 
right? How to deepen and enrich our understanding of him. That should be our goal when we are looking at the text. Now, again, I'm kind of going pretty quick. These are kind of brief things. If there's one you want to go into deeper, leave questions in the live chat, or you can always call in uh, or text in your questions as well. Um, but kind of working through these, because uh, we got a lot to work through. Let me get here really quick. Make sure. There we go. Um, mistake three. Mistake three is that we ignore passages that do not fit our theology. We often really like to focus on the passages or on this text that kind of serve our agendas, that, that seem like they agree with us when others just don't, right? There's a common, uh, there's a, YouTube, uh, a TikTok video that was posted not long ago that, that talked about how Pilate wanted to crucify Jesus and Pilate was trying to get rid of Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And I commented and I quoted the section out of, I think it was Mark, that just said, where Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Like, how do you square those two? Where it's like, no, Pilate, Pilate was wanting to get rid of Jesus and Pilate, Pilate was at fault here. And it's like, the text doesn't say that. It says, I find no guilt in this man, right? And so often we, we have this agenda that we want the text to say something. And then the verses that clearly speak against that, we kind of ignore. Now, again, where this becomes difficult is that there are going to be disagreements that people have in Scripture, right? Uh, the conversations that I've got on, uh, gotten, uh, talked about with people, like, for example, once saved, always saved, right? There are passages that seem to suggest that you can lose your salvation. And there are passages that seem to suggest that you can't lose your salvation. And so the difficulty here is when we have passages that seem to suggest two different ways, it, it sometimes is, is easy to say, okay, I think the passages that say you can't are more clear, and therefore I don't know how to take these other ones, but kind of ignore those or explain them away. And then the other side is like, well, no, I think the ones that say you can't lose your salvation are more clear, and then I kind of ignore or you know explain away the other ones. And so sometimes when we are having conversations or just reading the text to ourselves, we have to do that difficult work, right? Where there, where if Scripture seems to suggest that there are two possible ways of looking at something, you can lose your salvation, you can't, then we really have to walk through and go, okay, how do I understand this? Because it can't be both. And I think we also need to be generous and fair in our conversations with other Christians when someone disagrees with us on one of these passages that we do not assume that they are being ignorant or just, you're just ignoring the Bible. You just don't want to believe what the Bible says. Maybe they have a reason for kind of how they understand or how they interpret those other passages. And so this sometimes can look like we are in, in ignoring passages that don't fit our theology when people hold to certain views like that. I get accused of this. You know, it's like I ignore the first two chapters of Genesis or Genesis chapter one when I hold to an older view of creationism. Um, but it, I, I don't just ignore it. I, I think that there is a good explanation for it. And so sometimes it's being generous to those you're having conversations with, but also making sure that uh, are you ignoring it? Are you just dismissing it and going, well, I just don't want to think about that verse because it would show that my view is wrong? Or do you actually think you have a good understanding and interpretation of it? And so, again, we have to focus in this mistake. How do we correct it? We need to make sure that we fit ourselves into Scripture rather than trying to make Scripture fit us. We don't take our agendas and then try to find the verses that fit our view. But how do I wrap and change myself to then fit what Scripture is revealing? Mistake number four. Thank you, everyone, for being here, working through this. Mistake number four, we treat the Bible allegorically, right? This is a big mistake that we make where it's just this fictional narrative where, you know, characters and events are simply just presenting some sort of spiritual truth. These things didn't actually happen. God didn't, Jesus didn't really feed, you know, all these people with a few fish and some bread. It's just kind of giving this spiritual idea that he is the source of food or he is kind of the source of knowledge. It's like, no. Uh, this is not how scripture presents it. These are historical narratives that are presenting it as historically happening. And so to just kind of dismiss it as allegory is a big mistake uh, that we make. Um, and this has happened for a long time, right? It's just, this is just telling me how to be nicer. No, it's not just telling you how to be nicer. This is telling you that Jesus is God and is going to hold you accountable for your actions sort of thing. And so, again, we have to look back and say, okay, how, what is the original purpose? Is it just an allegory to teach us some sort of spiritual truth? Is it, you know, like a parable, a made-up story to teach some sort of lesson? Or is it being presented as a historical event that, again, we can learn principles from? When we read the Bible, right, it was, it's a comprehensive narrative telling us 
God's story in the world. And so we can't just dismiss it as being kind of made up. Mistake number five. Mistake number five. This one is huge. This one feels so close to home. We feel that our study is fruitless if we have not discovered new truth. We feel our study is fruitless if we've not discovered new truth. I taught this to my students, and I'm working through. Uh, these kind of big points are coming from uh, my textbook, Understanding the Faith, by Dr. Jeff Myers, a survey of Christian apologetics. Uh, I asked the students, like, man, how many times have you read the Bible? And you kind of get done, and nothing stood out. Nothing kind of went, bah, whoa! And you're just like, oh, man, well, that was a waste of time or whatever. And that's true, I think, of a lot of people, if you admit it. It's like, man, if you don't have some revelation that goes, wow, that really hits home to what's happening today, we feel like we kind of, oh, that was fruitless. That didn't really work. And um, what I encourage my students to think about with this one is this. Would I say that spending time with my wife is only worth it if I learn some new amazing thing about her? That if I just spend an hour with my wife and at the end of the time it's like you know we, we had a good time but like there's not like this new revelation or some new truth that i discovered that that was fruitless no of course not it's a good thing to just spend time with your loved ones even if at the end of the day it's not like whoa i had no idea i knew that about you before some new discovery some practical thing it's like no we're just supposed to be in relationship i think the same is true with scripture that we are just designed to be in relationship with God. And so by reading scripture and spending time in his word and allowing him to speak is just what we're supposed to do. And so even if you read a section of Leviticus or Numbers, that's what I'm reading through right now, Numbers, and it's like, well, I just read about all the temple and the measurements and, and all the things that they created. And um, okay, it's like, hey, but I still just took time out of my day to refocus on who God is. And we'll talk about how to understand those here in a little bit and what kind of things that you can draw from them. Uh, but let's try to get away maybe from that. If you have it, it's normal. If you have it, I think this is very common for everybody. But we should not have that feeling. We need to kind of fight against that idea that it's fruitless if we haven't discovered new things. Mistake number six. The sixth mistake that is made when reading through scripture is that we focus on what the text means to me, right? This is, again, the big thing that we talked about at the very beginning. And we often hear this question in a Bible study, whatever, and you sit down and you read through a passage. And it's like, what does this mean to me? And it's like, well, that's not the question. You don't get to come up with whatever meaning. You don't get to create that meaning. Um, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to apply it to our life once we have discovered the actual meaning. So the question is, what does this text meaning? What does this text text mean? And then what can I learn from it? How do I understand what it actually says? And then how that truth, how that information then applies uniquely into our situation. And so we gotta be careful that we're not just reading something and say, what does this mean to me? Well, to me, this means that God just loves everyone. Or to me, this means that you know everyone is going to heaven. Or to me, this means it's like, no, that's not how we read. Scripture is not just what does it mean to me, but what is the original author writing? Again, my funny joke with my students is like if I write, there is a test tomorrow on the board. No student goes, what does this mean to me? Well, to me, this means no homework. I can just go home and play video games. No, you, you have to say, what did Mr. Polly mean when he wrote this on the board that says there's a test tomorrow? Well, what he meant is he's going to give us a test tomorrow. Now, how does that apply to your life? You should probably go home and study rather than playing video games. You don't get to just make it, those words mean whatever you want. And it was like, oh, good, no homework. It's like, that's not what I wrote. And if you do that, if you understand it wrongly and you read test tomorrow as no homework, then guess what happens? You're going to show up the next day. There's going to be a test that you are not prepared for. Reality doesn't change. What happens in the future does not change because you understood something differently. And that's why it's important to understand something the right way. Mistake number seven. We assume that the Bible isn't relevant to us today. We hear this kind of a lot. This is very popular, like in songs. It's like, ah, oh, this is ancient book written 2,000 years ago. Like, you know, what do they really know about 21st century America? It doesn't talk about electric vehicles, and it doesn't talk about all these kind of things. Uh, what, what can we really know? What can we really get out of this? How is it actually relevant to us? It's, it's so old. It's a different culture, a different time, a different everything. Well, I want to share with you 
what I was reading with my wife for devotions this morning. This morning we read uh, in Romans chapter 1. And I want you to look at this last paragraph. And I want you to think about, um, is this relevant to our world and our culture today? Here's what it says here. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Isn't that interesting? Right? And it, it, like, you know, we, we often focus on the other parts of Romans chapter one here of, of kind of the sexual aspect and what it reveals about sexuality. And it's saying like here, like, look, human evil is not just confined to sexual sins. Paul lists a whole entire long list of evils that human beings do as a result of them turning from God. And not only, as they say, do they do them, but they give approval to those practicing them. Now, again, just look at that list. How many of these things happen today? How many of these things are relevant today where people are foolish, they're heartless, they're ruthless, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents? <laughs> are any kids out there disobedient to parents? Parents, do you have any kids that disobey? Like, that's relevant. How much evil is happening in this world that we not only do, but then we encourage, that we approve of, that we support? This is what happens when we turn from God's ways. Right? The Bible talks about money. Do we have money today? <laughs> the Bible talks about, again, how to deal with parents. The Bible talks about how to deal with friends. The Bible talks about a whole lot of stuff that we have to do with, that we deal with today. And so what we realize is that through Scripture, yes, this is revealed to a people a long time ago, but they are dealing with stuff that we deal with today, and therefore it is relevant. right? We are able to connect with the text and learn important information from it. And the Holy Spirit guides us as we read the text and as we learn these things. Mistake number eight. We take the Bible out of context. Right? This is super, super common. We take the Bible out of its original context, and therefore we are applying it incorrectly. Right, So one of the most famous passages uh, for taking the Bible out of context here, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now again, let me carefully explain this in case this is someone's favorite verse. If you see the word you, I once heard someone say, anytime you see the word in the Bible, you, just replace it with me. I know, God, I know the plans God has for me, plans to prosper me, not for, well, or for welfare, not for evil, to give me a hope and a future. The question, though, is can we actually replace all yous with me? And I would say no. Let me give you a brief little uh, example here that I use that I think is helpful. Imagine if um, I'm a young kid, I have two older brothers, I find a note tucked away in some drawer that says, Dear son, my dad has written this, I promise that on your fifth birthday I will give you a bicycle. Love, dad. Now let's say I find that note, and I'm, let's say, six years old, and I take that to my dad, and I said, Dad, you promised me a bicycle. Where's my bicycle? I don't see a bicycle. His response would probably be, I didn't promise you a bicycle. I promised a bicycle to your brother. In fact, I wrote that note before you were even born. You didn't exist at that time. The problem is, is the you is to my brother, not to me. And therefore, I can't expect the same of my dad. I can't hold that promise that was not promised to me to me. That would be inappropriate. Now, I can learn things from that. What can I learn? I can learn that my dad is generous. I can learn that he gives a good, gave a good gift to my brother. I can There's the things that you can learn and understand. But the problem is, is it was not actually written to me. Therefore, that promise does not apply to me in that same way. Well, again, when we look at Jeremiah 29, 11, the question is, what is the context? Right? Again, start with the paragraph. This is a letter, as it says there, 
Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, right? The people of Israel have been taken into Babylonian captivity. They are in exile. God has made promises to them throughout the whole Old Testament up until this point of promising them the land and promising them this future generations and your generations will grow and all this kind of promises that God made to Abraham and all the descendants of Abraham. And then they get destroyed. They get taken into captivity. So you have to imagine that at this point, the Israelites are like, but wait, God promised us this land and God promised us all this kind of stuff. But it's all gone. Did is God gonna stay true to his promises? And therefore we look then and says, yes, when these things happen, when the 70 years are complete, you're gonna spend 70 years in exile, but when these can complete, I, I will fulfill my promises and bring you back to this place, to the promised land. Because I know the plans I have for you, Israelites, declares the Lord, plans of welfare, not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. This is not written to us. And again, we have to be careful because just a few chapters later in Jeremiah 44, 11, it says here, therefore, there it is, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, let's highlight that for you. God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm and cut off all Judah. No Christian reads this and says, this promise has been made to me. God sets his face against me for harm. <laughs> Notice what we do. We, again, this is kind of like picking and choosing the verses that we like. We, we pick the good promises and say, see, God has promised this thing to me. And then we ignore the bad promises. Rather than reading scripture as we are supposed to and recognizing this is not a promise to me, but this is telling us something about who God is. Then we have to ask the question, what are the promises to us? And so if the you in scripture is referring to the church, if the you in scripture is referring to Christians, then that is a promise to us. Now, where the Jeremiah 29, 11 kind of gets a little bit tricky is, is that it is true in a sense. God has promised Christian believers a hope and a future. It's just not in the restoration of the promised land and the people of Israel going back to the land that God has promised them. Our promise of a hope and a future, I think, comes from like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are promised that death is no more that sin has lost, that we will receive glorified bodies, that the, the mortal will put on immortality. This is our promised hope and a future given to believers based on Jesus Christ and his resurrection, not based on what a promise that was made to the Israelites in exile to get their land back. So again, understanding the context can help us. Now again, when we talk about how to read and understand Old Testament Narrative, I think there's going to be some helpful questions to ask to say, okay, what can we kind of learn about these things? Now, in the live chat, uh, I see that you posted Matthew chapter 18. That was my next example. So Matthew chapter 18, we often see uh, this all the time. Let me pull it up here. <clears throat> in this section, uh, Matthew chapter 18, we often look at this very last part. It says, for, oh, just kidding. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, if you are a Christian and you're watching this video, you probably know that I, if you're like me, you often hear this verse uh, quoted when praying. All right, when you're praying in a group and there are two or three or four or five people in that group, so I'll say, hey, where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are among them. So God, we know that you are here and that you are listening to us. Now, the question this often <laughs> brings up in my mind is, well, what if I'm praying by myself? What if I'm sitting in my room by myself praying? Does that mean that God is not there because I'm only one and there's not two or three gathered in his name? Right, that would create a problem. So let's go back to the context. Now look at the, you know, the ESV has helped in giving us this thing, if your brother sins against you. But when you look at this paragraph, again, start with the big context, then the chapter, then the paragraph, then the verse. The paragraph is all about church discipline. If so, your brother sins, go tell him his fault. You alone. If he listens to you, great. But if he doesn't listen to you, then go get two or three witnesses. Then go to him with two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen, then bring it before the church and the elders. Right? He says, if two or three of you gather about anything I will and ask, it will be done. So I think the context here of, the, of Matthew chapter 18 is where two or three are gathering in his name. It's where two or three witnesses are in agreement on the sin of this person and what needs to happen to a person in the church who is in unrepentant sin. This is not that when we pray, um, God is there only if we are in a small group. Now, the last and common example 
that is often taken out of context, as always. Right? And I think I just want to offer one quick thought on this. Uh, Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When we read scripture, you often hear people say, well, when you read the word all, it means all. All things means all things. Now, again, we, we don't do this. So here's a, often a, a problem when taking things out of context is that we, we apply principles to reading tech, the text that we would never apply to other areas of life. Right? So um, this is the example I give my students. If I go to a restaurant with you, and then all of a sudden, like, I have to run to the bathroom or I got to run outside or something and I'm going to miss the ordering part. And I said, ah, I got to run. And I said, well, what do you want us to order you? And, you? and I said, I don't know. I'll eat anything. No one would go, oh, you'll eat anything? Well, anything means anything. So you go to the back of the store and you dig through the trash can. You find an old rotten banana peel and you find some nails and broken glass and put it all on this plate and then set it on the table before me. And I go, what is this? You said you'll eat anything. No, it's not anything. Anything on the menu, right? If we're in a restaurant, I say, I'll eat anything, order me anything. It's from the menu. This is the context that the anything is. So the anything doesn't mean anything. The same thing is here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not all things. It's all things within the context of what Paul is talking about. So you go back and you look at this paragraph, what is Paul talking about? And this thing is really clear right here. No matter what I have, I have learned to be content. I've been brought low. I've been abounded. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. No matter where I am, I can be content. That is the all things that he is talking about there. And so we need to go back and, and reading the paragraph in whole, at least the paragraph, is a huge help in understanding the context and can fix a lot of these mistakes. Number nine, I gotta go quickly because there's a lot more than I wanna talk about and we're already at 36 minutes. Number nine, mistake number nine, is that we interpret the Bible based on contemporary moral standards. We could interpret it, interpret the Bible based on contemporary moral standards. The Bible is eternally relevant. What it reveals to us are eternal truths in a lot of places. Now, sometimes there are cultural things that is happening in a very specific thing, like, you know, uh, like we just talked about with, you know, promises made to a certain people group. Um, but uh, we realize there's a historical particularity in which something is involved, but it's revealing God, the eternal God, who's, in, who's, who's working with his people and is eternally relevant to our lives. And so sometimes when we, when our culture is doing something against scripture, we, we don't like that and we want to reinterpret the Bible based on contemporary moral standards. So with the abortion debate that's often happening right now, uh, you hear people going back to scripture and trying to justify why abortion is right using the Bible and pointing to different passages. Um, the same thing with our sexual relationships. Like there's, I see tons of posts online about people claiming that the Bible never says anything about premarital sex. That, you know, it's so normal and accepted in today's culture for a boyfriend and girlfriend to sleep together. Um, and then we go back and we say, oh, see, the Bible doesn't really say anything about sexual moral standards. There's no comments about premarital sex. And the same is done with homosexuality. We've talked about that in the last few shows. That we have a very accepting and open view of homosexuality. And therefore, then we go back and we reinterpret different passages to make them supporting uh, rather than condemning. And so we have to be careful that we are not allowing, again, our cultural understanding of something to read into the text what it is saying, and instead allow God to speak and understand that correctly and allow that to shape us rather than us shaping the text. Now, the last mistake, and I think is one of the coolest kind of ones uh, to, to look through, is, um, is that we try to make the Bible fit contemporary standards of political correctness. Right. And so uh, this is one kind of cool thing with 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 um, uh, example I kind of work through with my students is we uh, assume that we can kind of change the Bible to make it a little bit more politically correct, especially when it comes to things like gender um, and not lose the original meaning. And sometimes that's true. Uh, where if it says, you know, sons, you know, we translate it children now. If it says boys. Now we say boys and girls. Or if it says men, we say men and women. Right. And sometimes we change it. And yeah, maybe it works. But other times we actually lose significant meaning. So, for example, in, um, I don't have the verse pulled up right here. I knew I would forget it. I think it's Galatians. Um, Galatians chapter 3, I think. Let me pull it up here. 
Um, verse 26, is it 326? Yeah, there it is. Galatians 3.26. All right, so Paul is writing, and uh, you see here in the ESV, it says, um, you for in Christ, in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Some translations have changed that and says you are all children of God through faith. Um, and to kind of make it more inclusive in that sense. What I want to kind of say here in the, kind of this last mistake is, is that sometimes this makes us lose something very unique and special. Sometimes there is gender-specific language that does not fit perfectly because there's a bigger, more valuable point that we lose when we change it. For example, it says that all believers are the bride of Christ. <laughs> if we change that and say, well, all believers are the bride and groom of Christ, because, well, clearly the women are bride and the men are groom, uh, and so men can't be brides, and so it's like, no, the, all believers are the bride and groom of Christ. Well, then we lose that, you know, Christ is the groom, and the church is his bride. And there's a beauty of, of what marriage is symbolizing and all that you kind of work through that you lose if you say, well, no, that's that doesn't fit our cultural understanding. Men aren't brides, but there's a way in which Scripture attaches men to being a bride. In this sense, we have uh, the you are all sons of God. And it's like, well, that's exclusive. That's not politically correct. You're all children of God. Let's change it. Well, the question is, why did he write sons? Why is this the case? Now, there's a. what's really cool is that in that culture, when you look at the cultural understanding, the culture, uh, cultural understanding is that only the sons could receive the inheritance. Daughters were cut out of the inheritance. And so there's a cultural understanding of like, look, when the parents are gone, the, the inheritance, the, the things that the parents have to offer the kids only goes to the sons. Sons are treated as better. And so when this is being written, it says, look, if you are a Christian, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you are all sons, meaning you are all going to be treated and receiving of the full inheritance. This is a beautiful, good, and amazing thing for the female believers that you will be treated like sons. You're a son of God, meaning you receive the full inheritance. You don't get the partial. You don't get pushed off to the side. You're like a son. Just like men are like brides. But when we change this and say you are all children of God, it's like, oh yeah, where's where's child? And we kind of lose the the cultural, the countercultural kind of message of that both the men and the women were included in the full inheritance. And so this is something that we just have to be careful with, that we are not just changing the Bible to fit our contemporary moral standards, contemporary standards of political correctness, at the risk of losing kind of very valuable, significant meanings. So here's 10 mistakes and kind of some ways in which to fix them. Now, what I want to um, go over with you guys, and again, if you have questions, please send those in in the live chat, or you can always uh, text in, is, is what do we do? How do we understand these different things? So what I want to work through now with you and the kind of the time that we have together is kind of the basic principles to understand the different genres or the different parts of Scripture. And then lastly, kind of share what I personally do uh, in my devotional time. So let's get rid of that. There we go. And uh, let's uh, bring this up here. So first of all, Old Testament narrative. Right. What we have to recognize, first of all, Old Testament narrative is revealing God's universal, eternal plan. That is the most important thing that we should be looking for when reading Old Testament narrative is what is God's plan. The second one is then the story of God's people. Right. And then the third dimension then is looking at the story of individuals. Right. And this is how God is working is his plan for these people. And then what that happens in unique individuals. And so the emphasis largely is God is the hero. God is the hero, not people, right? So when we look at, you know, um, Old Testament stories, right? Uh, one thing that we often do is, is we put ourselves into the situation, right? Where it uniquely applies to us. So we read the story of David and Goliath and we read that, uh, David killed Goliath with some, uh, some stones. And it's like, okay, then we apply this kind of uniquely to our life. And it's like, okay, I'm David the Goliath is my problem in life, and so I'm going to cast these stones and knock down my problems. And it's like, no, you're not David. right? It's not, I'm this hero and I'm going to cast these things down. It's like, God is the hero. And David <laughs> destroying Goliath is showing how amazing God is. And so that's what we have to, to focus on. This is a real story showing us how God is amazing. Uh, not just trying to help us see that you can knock down some problems in your life. Now, is it true that God can help us in, knock down some problems? Sure, but not always. What if a problem doesn't go away? 
God is still the hero. God is still good. Now, when reading Old Testament era, it's best to take this in big chunks, right? Just like a movie. If you take one sentence out of a movie, um, it loses its meaning. It can make it mean something else. It's hard to understand. You have to take it in big sizes. So reading Old Testament, at least a chapter at a time, is very, very important as we kind of work through it. Now, with the Old Testament, um, two things. Uh, number one, the primary contribution. The primary contribution of the Old Testament narrative is to inform and shape our worldview about the eternal plan that God is working out universally in human history and also underscore our continuity with the children of Israel as the people of God. So when we are reading scripture in this way, recognizing the primary contribution of Old Testament narrative, we first start with this question of what does this passage tell us about God, the hero, his plan, and our role that his people, or, or our role that his people should be playing according to his plan. That's our first question that we read when we look at the Old Testament. So when you're reading the, the parts of Leviticus and Numbers and talking about the temple, it's like, what does this tell us about God? Right? It's, it's all the, to the glory of him. The secondary contribution of Old Testament narrative is to give us a positive and negative models of Old Covenant believers making choices to trust God. Right? And so we can look at the people in the Old Testament and say, okay, what positive or negative model might this passage be setting before us to teach us about trusting God in the midst of his plan? Right? And that's, that's hugely visible in the Old Testament, where God has this eternal plan of trust in me, follow me, and you receive blessing, disobey and turn from me, you'll be under my punishment, but repent and come back and I will bless you. And we see the Old Testament people, the Israelites, constantly kind of flipping back and forth of disobeying God and receiving punishment and obeying him and being blessed. And that same framework is true for us today. And so this can teach us, hey, man, they did this. This was not a good idea. This got God's punishment. We shouldn't do those things. We shouldn't be idolizing other things. We shouldn't be doing these sort of actions. And instead, we need to trust God and follow his plan. So when reading Old Testament, those are some questions to ask. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about his people and how we can make good decisions in following and trusting him? Now, when we look at the Psalms, Psalms is going to be interpreted different, right? Psalms is poetry, right? We recognize there are different types of Psalms. So there are laments, a song that expresses sadness to the Lord by an individual or group, asks his help in a situation. Right, this is a very large category of psalms that we see. It's the psalms of lament. There are declarative praises that we see in the psalms. A song of praise to God for specific deliverance for a situation where they're praising God. There's um, descriptive praises. right? So by contrast, uh, I'm reading off kind of my notes that I've created here. Uh, praises God for his great attributes, his almighty deeds in general. right? So God is just great. God is mighty versus a specific situation. There's didactic psalms that teach about wisdom, the Torah, are key topics. There's songs of trust, emphasizing God is worthy, can be trusted, even when certain circumstances are bleak or despairing. And so there's all these different types and ways in which people are lamenting or praising God and, and for whatnot. So when we look at this, and when we're reading the psalms, we realize the primary contribution. Again, with each of these different parts, giving you the primary contribution, and then from that, what texts or what questions can be asked. The primary contribution of the Psalms is to model what a God-centered view of life is like through expression of worship and prayer and the way believers may express their deepest needs, pains, and concerns to God in passionate prayer and worship. So when you read the Psalms, ask, what does this Psalm tell us? about how God's presence and work connects with our deepest concerns and emotions in the midst of difficult or joyous circumstances. Now, the secondary uh, contribution of the Psalms is to give us models for worshiping God. So understanding that, we ask the question, what does this Psalm tell us about how we should pray, praise, or generally express our hearts and desires to God in individual and corporate worship? So how, how can I pray? Well, we look at examples of people praying in Scripture, and that teaches us how we can pray as well. So those are some questions to think through when reading Psalms. What about wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs? Um, we have to recognize uh, Proverbs must be read kind of as a collection. Um, they are sometimes separate, but other times they kind of work together. Um, they are not. Here's what's really important in the book of Proverbs. Another common mistake. We want to add 11th. <laughs> they are not legal or promises. They're not guarantees from God. The Proverbs are probable 
or likely truths, not absolutes. So it's like a an apple away keeps the doctor away. It's not saying if you eat an apple a day, you will never have to go to the doctor. It's saying that if you generally, if you eat healthy, you'll probably get sick less, right? That is an example of what we would see as a proverb. And so when we read things like train up a child the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. It's not saying if you train well, your child will remain a Christian forever. But it's saying, yeah, generally speaking, you provide good training, you raise someone well, they're probably going to continue that when they are older. And so uh, those are some examples that we kind of have to think through. Those are kind of the main ideas that we have to think through. And so the problems are worded very memorably. Uh, they may not be theoretically accurate, uh, but they are memorable. Um, and so we have to understand them in this way. And so when we look at the book of Proverbs, the primary contribution is that they directly in the book of Proverbs, or indirectly, like in Job, Ecclesiastes, or Song of Solomon, instruct us how to make wise choices in the nitty-gritty daily affairs of life and in the difficult, inscrutable events of life. How do you make wise choices? Therefore, when you're reading wisdom literature, ask the question, what does this passage tell us about what wise, skillful living would be in the area being discussed? What general pattern does this reveal for God's people or what specific behaviors does it challenge us to embrace? A lot of good, wise counsel there in the book of Proverbs. Now, lastly, for the Old Testament, the prophets. When we're reading the prophets, uh, we have to recognize a couple things. Let's just jump straight to primary contributions. The primary contribution of the Proverbs, uh, prophets I know I'm kind of going quick, but again, if you're watching, hopefully this is a good resource later on. It's like, hey, I'm going to start the profits. What's the primary contribution? Click to that link in the video or that, uh, uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to timestamp it. Click on that timestamp and jump to that part and, uh, and be able to see kind of what the primary contribution is and what you should be asking. Uh, but when we get there, uh, the, the primary contribution of the profits is to exhort us about the rewards to covenant obedience and warn us of the discipline of disobedience under the Old Covenant, so that we are challenged to maintain our hearts for God and our just treatment of others as we live under the New Covenant. All right, so we're asking this question, what does this passage or oracle tell us about Israel's behavior in their covenantal relationship with God and how God's response to his people and those areas would be, or that we may also be susceptible to neglect within our own covenant relationship? Right, so we should be looking at the, the prophets as they they plead with the Israelites, come back to God, turn from your wicked ways, and think, okay, in what ways am I turning from what God has called me to turn from? The prophets also, and that's kind of the main idea, the prophets are not mostly predicting future, but mostly the prophets are speaking from God, calling the people to repentance. But a secondary contribution of the prophets is to give us a glimpse into the immediate future of God's people or into the distant future of the Messianic New Covenant era and the superseding blessing of life in this climactic era. And so in that sense, we can ask the question, what does this passage tell us about God's plan for Israel, now past, or his plans for his New Covenant people, now present or still in the future for us today? And so this can reveal what God's plan is for us as we read the prophets. Now, the Gospels, uh, the Gospels, the focus of the Gospels is on Jesus, not us. The focus of the Gospels is on Jesus, not us. When we read Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus calmed the storm, the point of that is not to say, what storms do you have in your life that will cause you to sink or cause your walk with God to sink? No, that's not it. The focus of that passage in Matthew chapter 14 is Jesus's power over nature, that he has power to control the waves and the wind and the water, that he is God and therefore is worth following. That is the point, is on Jesus, not on us. Um, so again, the, the, the Gospels are written to try to show Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that we are waiting for. And sometimes we can compare the Gospels to kind of see things that we would not have seen before, where one Gospel talks about one aspect, another Gospel talks about another. You put them together and you kind of get this more robust view. Um, and so looking through this, we recognize um, kind of key contributions. Uh, let me pull it up here. The first and primary contribution of the Gospels is to teach us 
about who Jesus the Messiah is and give us the opportunity to be discipled by him as we observe him and his disciples. Also to observe him modeling life in the kingdom of God and listen to him about how we should live in the kingdom and be transformed in areas of sinful resistance. So with that in mind, we ask the question when reading the Gospels, what does this passage tell us about who Jesus is and how I should respond to being his disciple? How then should I live as a citizen of the kingdom of God? The second contribution of the Gospels is to give insight into how we may encourage fellow disciples. And so here we ask the question, are there certain principles or methods of ministry that Jesus is modeling as he ministers to his disciples or others that would be appropriate for us to imitate in our ministries? So we look at how did Jesus minister to people and should we be ministering in that same way? So again, it's not just to say, hey, what are the storms in my life that I need to overcome or else my boat's going to sink? It's saying, who is Jesus and how can we learn from him? Fast forwarding to the book of Acts. What is the main kind of contribution of the book of Acts? The book of Acts is there to contribute this idea to teach us what God is doing in history at the present time under the kingship of Jesus and the Messiah and to model for us what our corresponding purpose is and God's new, as God's new covenant people. It explains the roots as well as some of the fruits of our identity as the church as we fulfill our purpose in the world. So with that, we ask the question, what does this passage tell us about our purpose and focus as God's people? How should I respond to being part of the church and living as the citizen of the kingdom of God? A secondary aspect of the book of Acts is to give us methods and techniques for ministry to others. So we ask the question, are there certain methods or techniques of ministry that the apostles or others are modeling as they minister to others that would be appropriate for us to imitate in our ministries? Lastly, the epistles, right? We have to recognize the epistles. Um, uh, background information in reading the epistles is highly significant, right? There's less background information that's needed when you're reading something like the Proverbs. Um, an apple day keeps a doctor away, you know, sort of thing. It's like, you know, wisdom is good. You know, you know, laziness leads to ruin. It's like, okay, yeah, you can read that and understand it without really understanding the context or the, the background information. But the epistles background information is hugely important. These are letters written to a specific church or to a specific person. For that reason, we have to know the reason the letter was written in order to interpret it well. It's just like reading a text that you are not aware of or you are not a part of. It's like, if you don't know why this text was sent, then you're not going to be able to understand it as well as, as it should. Who was it sent to? Why was it sent? What problem are they trying to address is going to help you understand how to understand it. And so this is important to understand the ancient people uh, when we are reading an epistle. And so uh, primary contribution, last one here, to teach, exhort, and model our identity as the church and how we are to live in the community of God's people by making godly choices in a myriad of practical areas in order to fulfill our purpose. And so with that, we ask the question, what does this passage tell us about our identity in Christ and about specific choices we should make to underscore that identity or enhance our unity and ministry as God's primary means of ministry in the world? That is what we're looking at is how do we understand this identity that we have, and how God is calling us to minister and to live with each other. And so those are some helpful questions, some helpful thoughts hopefully, as you read this, to try to figure out what is the main thing. What is the purpose of this writing? What is the purpose of this genre? What are the primary contributions? What questions should I be asking? Then as you approach the text, you're looking at chapters or books, chapters, paragraphs, verses, and words. And these principles will help you be able to better read and get to the true meaning of the text and the true purpose for which it was written. Now, lastly, as I mentioned, uh, I will uh, tell you what I do and how I do devotions uh, because my encouragement, again, to my students and, and what I have found helpful, and again, if you have questions, post this in the live chat um, or call in. Um, what I want people to do is if you want to get better at reading the Bible, you need to read a Bible. <laughs> it's like we want to be really good at baseball without ever practicing or we want to be really good at doing whatever we like doing at art and, and, and drawing, but without ever drawing or doing art. Like the more we do it, the better we become. And we often pick up a Bible and kind of start reading and it feels awkward and it feels weird and therefore we stop. It's like, well, no wonder you, you don't do it very much. And so 
reading it and just keep reading it is good. Now, I'm not giving a, I'm not dismissing all devotionals when I say this, but it is true of many uh, that many people who do devotionals, read out of devotional books, are not actually reading the Bible, right? Many devotionals is like one verse followed by like a page of someone's personal story or interpretation or views or how it relates to something else. And so the most, mostly we're reading other people's thoughts about the verse, and they may be accurate and true, but we're not actually reading the Bible. We're not, we're reading what someone thinks about the Bible or how that someone thinks that verse relates to something else. That may be relevant. So they're not all bad. It's not saying don't do it. But oftentimes we do devotions where we're not actually just simply reading the Bible. So I was challenged by this a few years ago, actually, by uh, Jay Warner Wallace. And I also heard it from uh, Greg Kogel on his show. Uh, and I adopted that. I think uh, my date on this form is maybe back in 2019 or so. I started uh, reading the Bible this way. Uh, it's different now. I'll put a link to it in uh, description below. It used to be Discipleship Journal. Now it's with Navigators, uh, Bible or Book at a Time Reading Plan. Uh, here's what I love about this. Now, it's designed to read the Bible in a year. Um, which I don't think is necessarily always the best thing to do. Because what happens is you start checking off boxes and um, you get behind and then you kind of lose hope that you can actually do it. And sometimes you just give up, right? How many times have we started? I have uh, Bible reading plans in a year and made it through like February and then you kind of just fizzle out. Instead, how I use this is I don't look at the dates, uh, but I use this for two primary purposes. Number one, is I want to read at least one chapter when I sit down. Not just a verse, not just a paragraph, at least one chapter. Uh, but sometimes they're broken up into multiples. So if you look at like uh, the example of like the one with my wife, and I don't know if it'll come up clear. Oh, it's all blurry. But you can see there's like there's a box, and then there's like uh, four different verses next to it. Sorry if you're on podcast or radio, you can't see this. But there's like four different verses, and that's what you're supposed to read that day. Well, we didn't get all four verses read. So I put little check marks through each verse. And then once we read all four verses, then we checked off the box. And so uh, what this encourages and what I love about this is two things. Number one is I just read one book at a time. I pick a book and I start reading it. And as I read it, I check off the boxes until that book is done. So rather than just reading a verse or two verses and jumping around and going to multiple different books, I just focus on one book at a time because I want to understand what is this book about? I want to get the flow of thought from beginning to end of that book. I don't want to jump in halfway through. I don't want to just get the end, never read the beginning. I want from beginning to end the flow of thought, just like we would watch movies, right? You only jump to different scenes in a movie after you've seen it, right? The first time you, you've seen the whole movie and then you go YouTube search just specific scenes that you think are funny or interesting or whatever, but it's after seeing the whole thing. And so reading the whole book from start to finish is huge. The second thing I like about this is I have two. One is mine and one is my one for my wife and I. And so if I'm reading by myself, I go to one. If we're reading together, it's where we are. But um, it's reading all the books, not just focusing on the ones you like. And so rather than just focusing mainly on a New Testament or certain books that you like and skipping Leviticus and Numbers and, and those ones, um, it's making sure that you read all of them. And so, hey, we uh, look over this and it's like, hey, when's the last time you read like Obadiah? So we came over here and like, okay, Obadiah is not checked off. Let's read Obadiah. So we read Obadiah one morning and checked that off. And so we jump around. Again, I don't follow this in order. We jump around. And this is just trying to, I think, is useful in showing what books have we read and which ones have we not. And so uh, it, it can make sure then that we're reading all the Bible, not just the parts we like or the parts that are more interesting. So once every single box is checked, then that means that we have read the entire Bible and then I'll print off a new one. So I printed off a bunch of these for my students. I have them available in my classroom. Uh, students have grabbed them. Um, and so I like this because it, it, it helps you focus on reading everything not skipping like the books, like when's the last time someone's read like Zephaniah or Obadiah or, you know, Nahum or something. And, um, and then we just kind of jump around and, and read things that we maybe have not read as much before. And again, we take our time. Sometimes it's a chapter. This morning it was just cha Romans chapter one. Uh, other times it's three or four chapters if we have more time. Uh, but again, this is, this is my primary thing. It's just reading the Bible. Now, if you want to grab uh, this and do a devotion along with it to also get some thoughts, awesome. But again, my encouragement is that so many times with many different devotionals, not all, is that we often are not reading the Bible as much as we're reading other people's thoughts about it. And I don't want to just read books about the Bible. I want to read the Bible. And I think it's important for us to read, just read the Bible. 
And so this has been a plan that I've been using since 2019. This is almost all I've used. Every now and then for like Christmas or something, we'll grab like a uh, Christmas devotional or, you know, uh, or whatnot. Um, but anyways, it has been awesome and helpful and I've enjoyed it. And again, forcing you to read things you may not have read previously. So that's what I've done in trying to, again, get the big picture, understand the big ideas of things, read in big chunks, at least a paragraph at a time, as well as breaking things down into smaller things. So I hope this kind of overall hugely comprehensive guide to read the Bible better, asking better questions, coming to a more incorrect interpretation and not committing common mistakes will help you to not only become better at reading scripture, but will give you more joy and encouragement as you do this, recognizing how to do it well and truly understanding and learning what God is revealing to us. So with that, I'm going to be signing off. I uh, hope that you uh, subscribe and uh, look for the upcoming interviews. Again, Daniel Bach coming up uh, is going to be huge, and that's going to be a lot of fun, as well as other people I'm in contact with for the summer. They're going to be a little bit more spread out, uh, maybe go a couple weeks without one and then have like two or three in a week. I'm trying to just book a bunch when I'm, when I'm home, and so we'll see how that works. But again, um, I would love your prayers as we hit the road and all these different events. I'll try to keep some updates coming on YouTube. Uh, as well as uh, subscribe so you don't miss the videos and the interviews that are coming up. As always, there's tons of other training resources that will pop up over here on the side and other videos that you can check out if you're interested with my goal of training you to think well and to live well, defend the faith well, and understand it well. That is my goal and my hope, and I pray that I can continue to do that and that this has helped in doing that exactly. So with that, I will sign off. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for being here, Daniel Kelvey and Slam. Bye, everybody. Continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. See ya.